the new break rules in the break box. Uh, I've only watched a few of the matches from today, but I'm telling you what, I've seen more scratches on the break so far today than I probably saw in the last six tournaments combined. Yeah, I think you're going to see that more and more too. I mean, is is you have to hit it harder, or people are trying to cut break to get the one in the side, which kind of just sends the cue ball back and forth across the table. You know, it's it's really easy to get bumped and really easy to get pushed into pockets. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think we can expect to see more um, uh, more scratches. You know. Well, and just to be clear, so uh, hello, everybody. Well, you know, it's good to be back. I was gone for a few, uh, few weeks. I've been on vacation and handling a few things. But this break what box. What really happened was he was kicked off the podcast for talking bad about handicap. Yeah, it was, Don't worry. It's kind of like I a put on time Don't shoot. I've got a follow-up. I've got some. Yeah, we'll, we'll get back to that. But, uh, yeah, wave the white flag. But anyway, the uh, this break box, uh, just to be clear, it's, it's uh, because they've had the nine on the spot before. Uh, but the break box in the past has always been wider, and now they're narrowing it up to where it's like from the first diamond to the one ball, from the first diamond on the head rail to the one ball, you have to be inside of that cone or inside of that box. And um, that what what so what that means is you're breaking from closer to center than before. And even so, when there was nine on the spot, when they could break off the side rail, it wasn't so hard to send the one towards the side. When they had to break from the box, the only way to send the one to the side was they had to cut the one ball to create some movement on the one. But then that would create a more difficult strike and the cue ball is moving more. But now that that box, now that they're even closer to center, they have to cut the one ball even more, which means that there's even more residual energy on the cue ball. And, and so it's going to be moving more, harder to control, and a slight mishit is going to be much more wild cue ball and much it's much different, more difficult. So, uh, how has it been working? I haven't seen it yet. Is how has it played out? What has it done to the break and run percentage? What has it done to the to pay, you know the, the type of game? Well, I mean, just watching. Uh, I'm, so right now, I mean, obviously, I'm kind of to to uh, Jason Shaw right now is playing uh, Christian Serdia, and um, I mean, Jason scratched on the break twice. Once was uh, flicked off, so you're bre- he's breaking from the right, cutting to the left. Cue ball's coming off that left cushion, coming back into him. Uh, the first time he scratched off the bottom side of the nine ball. Uh, the second time, which I just saw here, and it uh, looks like Christian's going to run out from there. Um, he goes back, forth, back, forth, scratch. So it, go, it goes back and forth twice without hitting anything and scratches into the bottom corner. And right as I said, that Christian just missed a pretty easy six ball. So I guess. <laughs> are there are there any players that are just saying, screw it, let's just go with a head-on break and break really, really hard? Christian. Christian is breaking from the center. And uh, the first, the, so he, he, he won the lag, uh, broken, almost scratched into the, the, the bottom left corner, just put the cue ball right in the center of the table and just cracked it. The cue ball comes, you know, just one of those slow draws right back towards the corner pocket. And then when he won his sec or his first game, uh, he broke the balls again and scratched in the same exact way. Just slow drift right back towards the pocket. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how people adjust over time, you know, there's going to be a lot of people watching guys like Jason, guys like Shane, you know, the big break to just see what they're doing uh, because you can guarantee that they've been practicing it and really trying to hone in on, on what their approach is going to be. Um, I just hope that, you know, if, if, if we're looking for some kind of magic, you know, formula that's going to make the matches more even and more uh, skill based and things like that. Um, you're hoping that someone doesn't find, you know, the gaff break that kind of turns this into all the other breaks. 
So, you know, I, I, you know, personally, I'd love to see guys smashing it center on more and more, uh, trying to control the cue ball and just see where the balls go. The cut break, uh, you know, I've seen a couple people make the one in the side already uh, using that. But again, the cue ball does is a little less predictable that way too. So it's just going to be see. It's going to be interesting to see um, what comes out of this event once all these. You know, you have 256 players playing pretty much double elimination. It's going to be a long event. It's going to be interesting to see what the shakeout is at the end. You know, what the where where we stand at the end as far as how people are approaching it. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that uh, what one way to look at the break shot in nine ball too is you've only got three balls that are going to directly move towards anywhere close to a pocket all right you know maybe maybe two but the only balls that are really in play are the two quarter balls the wing balls and then the one ball and and so when the one is on the spot people can play the wing balls towards the corner or the one ball towards the side with the nine on the spot everything the only ball that you can really try to play is that one ball right, right. because the, the wing balls are going to shoot into the rails the back ball is going to hit a rail the mm -hmm. two balls behind the one are hitting the side rail and, and there's no break that's consistent enough to where you can play balls multiple rails into a pie. It's just not high enough percentage. So if you if they don't find a way to wire a specific ball, and the only ball that they're fighting over now is the one ball, and breaking from near middle, the only way to play that is by cutting the cue ball a lot. So not only is it harder to make the one, there, but it's harder to control the cue ball. Uh, it's also harder as they cut it more to get a good spread with the balls. And so even if they're able to make the one, suppose they're able to make the one some of the time, but they get hooked more often because they lose the cue ball or they get more congestion because they can't get the balls opened up really well. Uh, and, and it could be that even some of the time they're able to make the one and control the cue ball and get a shot. But if they have a number of dry breaks trying that or a number of scratches trying that, are they, are they losing too much chasing that up, you know, to where, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It'll be really, I'm, I've never, I've never been more interested to see this. And I, I, I love it, man. I think that it's about time that we made it so that, um, like it's too soon to celebrate success, but I like the direction they're going. Yeah. And it's, you know, the other thing that you're talking about, you know, the, the randomness of the break now is too, you're not gonna be able to control that second ball, even if you can make the one, you know, you know, with, when they were able to make the wing ball and pretty much control the one up table, it, it kind of, it kind of really dumbed down the game. Um, and so and this is even if that ball. Theoretically, in a different well, that's, that's going to be time. the interesting thing. If people do start, you know, making that one in the sign all the time, they're going to have to, you know, Shane, Corey, guys like that are going to sit there spending months studying where the two ball goes, depending on where it's racked <laughs> and seeing how they, they adjust based on that. So um, it's, it, you know, it, it, it will be interesting to see how this goes for going forward. Well, you know, and, and somebody just said that Corey Duell will figure it out, you know, and you're talking about how, yes, of course, people are going to learn it and understand it. But there will get to a point where there is still a difficulty level to where it can only be controlled so well. So, for example, when you're using a template rack with the one on the spot, it's really, really, really simple to make the wing ball and control the one. Now, if you're starting to, you know, as you start making the nine on the spot, but you could break from the side rail. Now, uh, you know, it's more difficult to control. Now you're making maybe the one on the side. It's more difficult to control the back ball. In the, in the rules where they had the break box that was wider, like in the 2018 International Open and many of the Euro Tour events, now they're having to cut break the balls, making the one on the side. But even still, a lot of the players have figured out how to make that two ball that was in the back go three rails in front of the side. And so, yes, they keep stepping up their control game, but it's getting tougher. And now with this, it's possible 
that it gets so difficult that I guess it means it's like, well, what do you mean by control? If you break 10 times and twice you're able to make the one, control the cue ball and get a shot on the two the way you want it to, but eight times it doesn't work because it's too tough to execute. Like there might become a, there might be a point at which the difficulty of executing is such that you might have a strategy and it might work sometimes, but it's, it's not going to let people just run 10 racks in two innings like you've seen in other formats. Well, I think this, this is an interesting thing. Uh, so in Beloit, Wisconsin at the Karam Room, uh, they have a break pot there. And I think it's probably okay to say it, right? Just wanting to talk about how much money you won. No, but okay. <laughs> the, the idea is so, well, I, I don't think, I don't think it matters. They have a one on Friday night where they, I mean, that'll get up to stupid amounts of money. Like we're talking four or $5,000 a ball. Uh, and the idea that Dave Coles has had, running that place is it started originally in its infancy as a rack of nine ball. And that, that's it. You just break a rack of nine ball with a magic rack, or maybe it's hand rack, whatever it is, you break a rack of nine ball. And what ends up happening is uh, when you start throwing $4,000 a ball at a bunch of degenerate gamblers, what they're going to end up doing is they're going to end up figuring out the rack and they're going to sit there and they're going to work at it for all week long to try to get to the point where you can figure out how to break those balls consistently and have a shot. And so what ends up happening was Dave changed it. It was no longer a, a template rack or whatever it was. It went to a hand rack, whatever the, now, uh, now the way that they rack the balls is they actually have uh, a, a triangle of six balls. So they have the one, uh, I guess the one balls in there, and then they put the two ball frozen to the bottom rail. So if we can imagine the pool table here, the bottom rail, this is the spot. They freeze the two ball to this bottom rail. They put the three ball in the exact center of the pool table. And then they put the four ball at the exact uh, top side of the table, frozen to the second diamond. And you have to break in from the box and you have to put your hand on the rail. So all of this is to say, like, they've gone through like six, seven, eight, nine iterations of this break. And each time they make it a little bit harder and a little bit harder and a little bit harder. And eventually you get to something that doesn't even look like a rack of pool. But the idea of it is if you give people incentive to figure out the break, they eventually will. And you're just going to have to keep changing it up or just accept that people are going to, you know, figure these things out. So the two on the rail, the nine in the middle, eight frozen to the top rail. Okay, so it's, it's my pickle guy. Um. <laughs> yeah. So the idea of that is like, so like, this is the first iteration of uh, matchroom changing the break. Maybe right. they'll, maybe they'll get to the point. I think the easiest they, thing, easiest thing to do would be they're going to figure it out. Easiest thing All to do them. would be to just blindfold the racker, and then rack the balls after he's blindfolded, so he has no idea what pattern the balls are in, and then he's got a break, and then you see what happens. <laughs> well, I think I think they should just find one of the players' children. So I think uh, uh, Jax, for example, would be a perfect perfect candidate for this. Sky, Ashley, uh, bring your kiddo to every one of these tournaments and let him rack the balls for everyone. And once he's done <laughs> grabbing the balls and throwing them into the side pocket, having fun, yelling ball, grabbing the ball, throw it into the pocket, he'll rack the balls eventually. And whatever whatever they rack the balls is, that's that's you know the the little Jax is racking the balls for everyone. Perfect. Well, I'll tell you what. So, uh, by the way, we got a question about the break box. They actually did. That's what we're talking about. They just, it's not exactly as wide as the rack, but it's a much narrower break box than they used to have. So it's very close. Uh, but but here's where I disagree. I, I, people that are acting like, well, there's either a set of rules where, I mean, it's just going to get cat and mouse and they'll just figure it out. They'll just figure it out. It's like, no, I think that there's really soft racks, like I said, where it's easy to control. That's going to lead to really short sets and really a lot of break and runs. But look at it in straight pool. 
did they ever figure it out to where Moscone would play the one on the side? Like maybe during an exhibition, but like when they played in tournaments, they played safe off the break. In one pocket, they don't open break and find a way to drive 13 balls to their hole and draw their cue ball up table. Corey Duels worked on some goofy breaks like that, but no, they skimmed the rack. Uh, so the point is that we've seen examples where it gets tough enough to where they don't open break the balls because it's so difficult that that's just not advantageous. And so I, I just think that to act like you can't, you can't protect, there's no set of rules that will defend. It's like saying, well, there's no way to defend. I mean, bank robbers are always going to find a way to rob the bank. So what are you going to do? It's like, no, you can kind of shut this stuff down. Don't you think? Uh, well, I mean, they're bad examples. I mean, you can't, a straight pool and one pocket are fundamentally defensive games. Nine pocket, or nine ball is 90, 85%, you know, offensive game. I mean, they're, they're just designed to be different fundamental games. I, I, I don't think that that's and a great example. And, and to be honest with you, Larry Neville won uh, the King of the Hill or the uh, the Derby City all around in the one pocket where he cracked the rack as hard as he possibly could, happened to make a ball in his in his pocket and ran out. I mean, <laughs> so the, <laughs> it does happen from time to time. But the, my point is, is like if you give if you give 150 players year round incentive to figure out a rack, uh, that you're going to end up hitting it hard, like they're going to figure it out. Like we're well, not why, talking, why, we're not talking about. The, why did none of the top straight pool players find a way to make a ball off a frozen rack? Then, because even if you make a ball off of a frozen rack, what does it lead to? If then you can run 150 out without having to play safety. <laughs> I get that, but the, but but just because just because you break the ball uh, a wired ball in doesn't guarantee that you're even given a shot off of one pocket, right? Well, in, but in but in straight pool, your odds of coming up with a shot are what? I mean, this is okay. This is a bad. I, we don't want to go down this road. I mean, that doesn't yeah, make any yeah, sense. Kind of getting off track here a little bit. But. Yeah. Well, I, they're just they're just fundamentally different games. The the point that I'm trying to make is when you watch, I mean, watch uh, Dennis Arcoyo and uh, Shane Van Boning play their their race to 150 with the this basically these exact rules, right? They're they were. I no, they, they didn't have a zero, the they didn't have a zero of a break box. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they, yeah, they they broke from the box when Shane and Dennis but, played. They broke but the box is more template. narrow. Sure, but they they had a template and that helps too. But the the point is is like you're you said this you started this originally with two out of ten times they they, they do it well. Okay, well, what happens if it's four out of ten? Right, that's a huge difference, right? And it's right. And if and if you find one player by the end of this tournament that that one player who figured something out and is making it four out of ten, they're going to be there at the end. I don't care whether it. But you, that's a big if. That's a big if. We haven't seen that yet. Yep. That's well, all I'm saying. Is we haven't well, seen. Well, I think I think you're, we do see that. Right? Your your argument is well, we're going to see that because the players are going to figure it out. It's like yeah, well, okay. Put it this way: suppose playing nine ball, you had to like kick at the one ball, and you'd be like, well, the top players will figure out a way to kick a ball, and it's like I don't think so. I, I think that's too tough. And so I think that there's a point at which players are no longer going to be like there might be a point. And my my only concern, my only concern is what if the break gets so tough that the, the breaking player starts losing more racks than winning off the break? Does that break nine ball the other way to where players start having to play defense and nine ball the way they did in straight pool because they can't figure out a way to generate a 50% chance? That would be my only concern about this. You, I think you're missing my broader point that I'm coming at. This is this will get figured out this tournament. Right, because at the end of the day, that you know, if if ninety five percent of the field is making two out of ten successful breaks, and there's six out of ten that's making four out of ten, because they just happen to find the perfect combination of strike and speed to get that ball down with a shot better, like that's that's exactly what ends up happening every single one of these tournaments, and like you you take that recreated. I mean, Sky yeah. Woodward did this for like two years, where 
he did get this this exact almost this exact breakdown perfectly, and his two ball was over the side pocket, and he was winning a bunch of these events. My point is, is more, the people who do figure difficult. it out. These are the I'm, most difficult break rules we've ever seen. They're more yeah, difficult. Yeah, that's the thing. When you get when you get to at the end of the day, what you're looking for is what's going to make it the most random and the most difficult, and um, and prevent it from just becoming uh, a break and run fest. So we don't want to make it. I don't even think any of us. And Demetrius said this. I, I don't want to get it to the point where nobody can make a ball on the break or they have no. And then it becomes this. It's it's no fun to even watch. So you, you're looking for that that area in the middle. That gets that increases the difficulty and the randomness of the break shot, but it's still going to you know lead to some runouts and the best players are going to you know run out when they have the opportunity and the best players are going to know how to play the best safes when they can't run out and they're going to know how to come back on someone you know who's not breaking as well as they are. So you know that's that's what you're looking to get at the end of the day is just the the, the rules that make it tough and honest and reward the best players. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think that uh, I think that what they've done by narrowing the break box, I think that nine of the spot break for the box was like it was like the best rules we've seen. But even then, like you said, the top breakers, Sky and Dennis, they were able to start getting that one ball going and controlling stuff. So by narrowing the box, we're not making it so that there's no chance to do anything, but we're just making it a little bit tougher to where we like you know we don't want to get it so tough that you know that the breaker has a disadvantage and then it cha- it wrecks the game. Right. But we just want to make it so that we get to see a little bit more play. And so uh, as a result of that, the only thing I'm wondering is it'll be interesting to see. Do people still solve it to the where it's a decisive advantage? Does it get to the point where it's so difficult that the breaker starts having a disadvantage and we've overcorrected? And also, does it change the game to where there's so many longer racks and dry breaks and pushouts and moving games that – that I think that two things that we might see is we might see really long matches. We might see the match lengths increasing. We also might see that the top players have a more a bigger win percentage now than they used to because it's it's like a race to nine might play a lot longer than in the past. What about, I mean, the other thing, if I interject just one quick second, Nate, because I want to follow up on what he's saying is, I think one of the things that's going to help that too is uh, as you get into the later stages of these tournaments, it's going to be hand racking. So that's going to change the game even a little bit more. It's going to make it even a little bit tougher because there's going to be a little bit more randomness thrown in there. And over the course of time, as these tournaments get bigger and match room gets bigger and nine ball, whatever, these events get, get you know, you'd like to see a day where there's hand racking for the entire tournament uh, because they've got enough staff, enough people to be able to do that, right? So if you get into that, um, it, it's going to, you know, it, it will help. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's about making it just honest and tough and and you know we'll get to that point. I'll make a bold I'll make a bold prediction that uh, by the end of this tournament there will be a fifty percent running percentage, and it's because there's going to be two. I'm I'm talking about like the last like four players. The last four players will figure out a, a, a proper speed to hit and the 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 perfect cut. And these players are so good at hitting their same speed and their same cut over and over and over again, that there's going to be a few players that do figure this out before this tournament is done. And, you know, maybe they go to the next tournament next week with a little bit different humidity conditions. And maybe the, the, the air's a little bit thicker, a little bit thinner. Maybe uh, the table's a little bit tougher, whatever it is, they might not have it a week from now, but they will figure these run out, out on 50% of their breaks. The last, I, I, w- I would guess that if you look at the semifinals and the finals, that there will be one player who runs out of close to 50% of his. It's hard because in one set, I could see it happening. But if you want, and I'm I get what you're saying. The entire tournament. I'm saying like the last two matches. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's, uh, that good. 
Yeah, it's it's it's. But see, the the problem is, let's because I, 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 I get what you're saying. The only problem with that bet is suppose you have four guys left, and among the four of them, the last two matches, so the two semifinalists and then the finalists, among all those sets, the average break and run is thirty percent. But then there's some variance where some people are only breaking and running 10 and some people break and run 50. Well, the guy that breaks and runs 50 is probably going to win those sets. So then the guy that wins might end up with a 50. Per- but I think that the finalists among like the break and run percentages at towards the end, I think are, I, I would bet that it's going to be closer to like 30, 35, something like that. And, it, and you know, I can live with either one. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's, yeah. at least it's not a break and run fest. You yes. know, should someone, you know, you, you hope someone, you know, gets dialed in and, and then they became the best player of the tournament. So you just don't want it to be this, this dumbed down game where it's just so easy and guys are running five and six and, and whatever. So, so if someone gets to that, you know, gets all the way through the tournament and the last matches, they, they run 40% of the break runs. I got to live with that. Yeah. And then my prediction would be that there's more lopsided scores. I don't think the matches are going to run long as much because they would run long, except for the fact that the top players are going to have a bigger advantage than normal because there's going to be more post-rack play. So I predict that there's going to be a lot of mismatch scores where, like, if if Fedor plays a guy who's like a, a you know a, a Polish champ that's you know like Conrad, um, you know, in 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 nine in the traditional Euro Tour rules, maybe they both play. You know, maybe the sets are closer. But I think that in this format, with the with more dry breaks, more pushouts, more moving, I think that the top players are going to have. Uh, you're gonna see you're gonna see a little bit more one-sided scores would be my guess anyway. Sure, I just I just think by the if you if you give a hundred player a hundred world quality players a chance to figure out this break they're gonna figure it out. They might like I said they they might not because the break is significantly harder. I would say that if they played this exact same tournament next week in New Zealand, that given the in the different initial conditions. Uh, yeah, it's it's gonna be, you're gonna have to refigure it out again. But I, I think that this can be solved by each individual. I think this. Let can me ask be you a question about that. Given the, sure. Suppose you had to break from frozen on the middle of the headrail. So frozen from the middle of the headrail. Do you think that they could figure out a break from that position to where they no. can? No way. Okay. So no, 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 no. I I understand that I'm exaggerating, but my point is this: somewhere between, we know that from the side rail they can figure out an effective break. We know that from frozen on the headrail they probably cannot. So somewhere between the two, there's a zone in which you can limit the cue ball to the point where it's no longer feasible to have an advantageous situation. Now, now we're just deciding when that's possible. You're saying that they still have enough play where they can put their grid into the table. They can still do enough. What I'm saying is if you give them the freedom to at least tinker around with things, so you give them the ability to move things around within not, not a, a, an area the size of a quarter, but if you give them a real opportunity to tinker, they're going to figure out a ways to make it work. These players and are think, just too good. I think you're right. And I think the question is the, you know, I think what Matchroom is trying to figure out is what's how much restriction do we need to gradually right. increase where it becomes the right optimal balance for the viewers and for the players. And I think they're on the right track. So whether this is yeah. final or perfect, yeah. I think they're on the right track. Yeah. I mean, even when you talk about I, guys figuring it out, I mean, it, even with the one on the spot and, and there were, You'd see guys get to final matches, great breakers like Shane, all of a sudden couldn't break for a match. Mm, I mean, it, yeah. yeah, it's not, there's no guarantees that once you well, figure it out that this game is going to get dumbed right? down. That's hand racking, right? And okay, I, so you're going to have hand racking yeah, in the last right. four rounds of all these matches. 
you're right. Because to be honest with you, when I'm thinking about all this, I'm thinking about like, um, you know, even even them hand racking it in the practice room. I'm thinking like, okay, well, they're going to go in there and they're going to break. Someone's going to break four hours a day of their hand racking. But then you go out there and, uh, you know, you got uh, Marcel out there hand racking who racks the balls completely different than what they do. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe given the idea, because we've seen that hand rack sabotage some players in the quarters, semis, and even the finals of some of these tournaments. Maybe, maybe given the idea of the restrictive break rules with the uncertainty of the hand rack, maybe that is good enough. I don't know. I just think that by the end of this tournament, assuming that there is some sort of consistency from the hand racking, that some player, whether it's Joshua Filler, whether it's Jason Shaw, whether it's Shane Van Boning, whether it's, you know, some some other player that, uh, you know, is a, it's too good not to figure it out, will figure it out. Well, we'll see. And I'm not saying they're going to be breaking that 100% clip. What I'm saying is they're going to get to some level of... Yeah, I mean, people are going to... Eventually, the top player is going to find a system that they like that works. It's not it's always going to work. And to be and honest, so what, what, what they might end up finding out is how to make a ball and keep the one in the... or Maybe they find out how to make a ball and keep the one ball close to the cue ball so that even if you don't get a shot on it, you're going to end up being able to play a lockup safety. I mean, maybe that's what they end up figuring out. Maybe that'll be, that'll be interesting. Well, and I'll make the, I'll make the opposite prediction that I predict that the person that wins the tournament gives up on trying to do all this fancy stuff and they just start smashing the rack. And like Shane was doing, you know, where you just hit them straight on really hard, 22 miles an hour, pop the cue ball, crush the rack, make a ball and fight your way out of it because yeah. all this other cutting break and controlling everything, they're going to either miss the Too one risk. Ball, it's right, risk they're going to get right? They're going to scratch. Yeah. You're going to have so many problems. I predict. I don't. I don't know about the winner of the tournament, but I predict that half of the final four, half of the final four, are just going to go to an all-out smash them hard and see what happens. Break. Let's well, see. to be honest, yeah. to be honest with yeah. you, that that means I got to root against uh, Shane because if Shane makes it there, Shane has enough influence with his break uh, rapport that uh, anybody else who's going to be there is just going to follow what he does. Uh, so I got to hope for Shane to be eliminated early. You know so what would be funny, Nate? You know what be really funny? What if Shane started breaking really hard and just like crushing the rack for most of the tournament and just outplaying people? And then all of a sudden, like in the finals, he like switched. He actually had another cut break that he had solved. He just didn't want to show anybody until it was time to take the cheddar. <laughs> Does that anyway. count as a win? Would that count as a win for me then? I feel like that would count as a win for me. I think for sure that would be a win for you. All right, Shane. You got a plan. Go on. <laughs> right. All right. Um, well, I guess that was a big, long discussion about a, a break. That's a big so, deal. Uh, I think it's worth it. Excuse me. No, one I, second. Think, I think it's one of the bigger things with the whole, you know, um, with the, all these new tournaments and, and the expansion of the, you know, the pro events and the nine ball tour, so to speak, things like that. Um, it's important that they come up with this solution with sure. a solution. And, uh, you know, this is probably the most dramatic shift that they've made. Uh, I think it's interesting, you know, if you look at it, uh, to me, it was very interesting that there's no shot clock for all the way down to like the last 16, I think, or 32. Uh, so I think, I think maybe they're right? doing, I think maybe they were doing that to give people, I mean, they'll put people on shot clock if it takes too long, but you know, you got to give people the, a little more time to figure this out with the new with the no, new system I, they have. What I what I was I, I think what the problem is with that is uh, the UK Open they couldn't find enough volunteer or they couldn't find enough people to actually run them. Um, I mean, without going too deep into the details, um, I think they ended up from what I was told. Anyways, I could be wrong on this, but what I was told was they didn't want to give enough to justify people working the 
12 hours a, or whatever a day, they couldn't uh, pay them enough to justify yeah. them working it. And they were, they were really, struggling to find, they were really struggling sense. to find enough volunteers to take on 12 hours worth of work a day for four or five days straight then, for. Then you have to kind of assume then that that's why in the loser's bracket, they changed it to race to eight because they're assuming these matches are going to go a little bit longer as people have to work sure. racks a little bit longer, especially when you get into the loser side where you have the lesser players right out of the gate, start playing each other. Um, you could run into some long matches. So I think I'm, I'm assuming that's why they changed the loser side to race to eight. Could be. Yep. Could be. But I, I, I don't know that you're wrong on that with the shot clock, but that would be my strong. You're probably guess. wrong. Because when, well, whenever you come into, especially this event, right, you're into a new area. The UK they have a rapport with a lot of the local players, the local tours, the lo the you know the local um, referees. Uh, they don't. I would guess that they don't have that in Germany. I don't think that they have a ton of uh, you know local people on the ground that they can use to recruit help like they can in the UK. So if they can't get that in the UK, I mean, I can't imagine that you're going to end up getting that in Germany where you have way less contacts. So I, I I'm yeah. guessing that they're not having the shot clocks on every single table like they did in the past because not because they don't want it, but because yeah. they, they can't. What recruit yeah. It makes sense. Why don't they just have the other player do the clock? Someone like Dennis would start at three. Um, yeah. Speaking, well, speaking of locals, uh, local flavor and local people. It's interesting. It was interesting to me that that the two two of the uh, um, you know the countrymen who the the German players all look up to the most lost right out of the gate. Torsten lost in his hometown right out of the gate, and Ralph lost right out of the gate uh, to fellow German players who aren't nearly as known. I thought that was kind of kind of interesting. Uh, it doesn't mean a damn thing, but I thought it was interesting nonetheless. They have Roman Hebler on the bracket as uh, as German. They got a I thought German he was, frag. I thought, was he like? Uh, I thought he was. I I lost to him in a U.S. Open in like '09. Had a good He's tournament in Germany. He played a <laughs> he played a really suffocated. He was really solid. I mean, like really really solid. When I played, I thought I played. I just I'd won some good matches. I was playing really well. I beat some really good players, and all of a sudden I played him, and he was like just suffocating, like airtight, really really solid. Uh, that guy, I don't know. He's 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 a great player. Yes. Yeah, I don't remember where he's originally from, but uh, Czech, I'm like ninety percent sure he's from the Czech Republic. That's yeah, what I, think, I, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. Like ninety nine point nine. I know he's not German. I know he's not German because he's played. He's uh, he's, played, nah. he's played on the he's played on the the World Cup of pool team. I'm I'm pretty for for the Czech Republic like a, a trillion times. Like he's not German, well, but they yeah. have a German name a flag next to his name, which is. I mean, I'm, I'm saying this like I know he like, but maybe he moved. Know. You know, people can move, I guess. But um, I, well, I Veronica moved, but she still goes under the yeah, German Jason flag, and, under, and uh, Jason yeah. Charles is playing under a U.S. flag right now. <laughs> yeah, no, no, and, well, even even Niels, Niels, you know, will always play under a Dutch flag, yeah. uh, even though he lives in Denmark. But um, so, uh, you know, but two people I know are German for sure are the fillers. And they're dialed they in to face each other. each other in the third in the third yep. round. They're both favorites by ranking, at least, to get to that third round match, which would be that would be interesting. That would be a lot of fun. I would hope they would put that on table one. That would go to the winner of so 
I was Winner that goes right into the 64. Well, I was going to say that. Yeah, the winner of that goes in. You know, look, looking at the bracket, would you, do you think it would happen <laughs> where Josh would forfeit that match if he has like a, a player that he doesn't think he could lose to or whatever on the B side? And of course, that's a little disrespectful, but the, the idea is hugely would, disrespectful. Would you, well, I mean, there are players who are drawing dead against him. Let's be real. <laughs> I mean, Three quarters of this field is damn near drawing dead against Joshua Filler in his in his shape right now. But I guess as as what do you think about doing that? I, what do you think, Mike? Would you think about like losing that match or just forfeiting that match to let your wife? Into I would the never. Final? I would never seriously think about it if I considered myself a real athlete, sportsman. Sure, I had to argue this in the past because <laughs> like when uh because when they play in the past, like uh Pia would actually forfeit to Josh. In terms of like that, she forf- uh, she forfeited to him in Turning Stone, I believe this year. Uh, I believe that was a tournament that she forfeited to him, and we had a discussion on on the podcast. And everyone's like, "Well, why the hell would you forfeit? Like, take a swing at it. You know, you're not an athlete if you're giving up matches." I'm like, "Well, they're not playing that match as an athlete. They're playing that match as like a financial thing, right? I mean, you go to a tournament to win money. You're a professional athlete, and if they decide that Josh has the best chance of ma- them making money, why would they play it?" All you're well, doing to is, me is, I mean, you know, you could take that to other tournaments with players who aren't married, players sure. who are from the same well, country, perhaps, and are splitting pots up. with each other and all that stuff. And to me, that's just yeah, doing that's business. business. That's just that's business, business. And I don't like yeah. it. Yeah, I, I will tell you that I've um, I've done things that upon review and reflection, I've regretted because I listen, I was a young pool player. And so and even even not all that long ago, like I just. I found myself in situations that I wasn't, I, I didn't really, I never really sat around and asked myself, like, what would I do in this situation? What would I do there? What would I do there? But I had a match where I went to a tournament with Jesse Engel and he was, he made like the final, I guess he made whatever. He was in like fifth place or something like that on the loser side. And I was coming to the loser side, playing match after match. And I had to play like one more, two more to get to where I end up playing Jesse. And he's a better bar table player than me. And he's, and he's fresh and he's playing good. And I don't know why, but we decided that if I could get past, I think Oscar, um, if I get, you know, then I, and I ended up getting past Oscar. And, and so I ended up playing Jesse and then, uh, and then I just let Jesse keep going because I was like, he's, he's got our best chance we're going halves. And you know what? I made that decision because I just, it wasn't, but looking back, like, I'm not saying I regret it because the past is the past, but I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't do that again. Like I, I was just one yeah, of those things I, where I, I did it more. I don't have a good reason other than just, I didn't, I hadn't really considered like, I hadn't really reflected on how it jives with my values. And now looking back, I'm like, no. And now there's no Calcutta. And I wasn't like trying to chop it, but it was just looking back though. It's like, no, that's not right. You play yeah, and I, I think understand that, money and all this, but it's like, this is not the right thing to do, you know? And, and I, I, you know, honestly, I think in, in, you know, the, the more cutthroat world of going to bar table tournaments in Iowa and wherever, and, and, you know, with some friends and you're trying to split up some money, whatever. But if you're at this level where you're trying to consider yourself a professional sport and be on TV and all that, that stuff's got to just go away. Yeah. When you have sponsors and fans. Yeah. When there's sponsors and fans. Got to go away. Agreed. Yeah. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that, that match, but uh, anyway, but yeah, it would be I never looked at it from like a gambling aspect. Like theoretically, if this was like a golf thing or like a tennis match where you actually can bet on who's going to win, the idea that uh, you would let your your Someone wife take go a dump, into yeah. yeah, that yeah, that's- and, and I think what it really has to do with those, it has to do with what is the arena, or what is the game board? You know, like if if pool is played on the table, which means 
that everything you compete on is on the table and you always give your best. Some people then, you know, they do this thing where they look at it like part of the strategy is, is, you know, partnering with the right people and, you know, business or doing business as part of the strategy or letting people advance as part of, because the overall strategy is how can we take the most money out of this tournament? And that's the game we're playing and pools part of it, but then this other stuff is part of it. And so I think that it's, it's like, if people don't really consider it, it, what I'm here to tell people is no, 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 the game is only to be played on the table. So you're always to do your best and, and, and you're not to try to do stuff else. And it's the same thing with like managing a handicap or managing all this other stuff. It's like, no, 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 no. Always do your best. Play, leave it all on the table. That's the you can play strategically and take intentional fouls and stuff like that, but only within the confines of those four rails. Outside of those four rails, that's not the game anymore. Do your best. Have integrity. Yeah. This is well. I, I'm I'm with you there until you say have integrity because I don't think that like this is an interesting. This actually is like a really interesting thing, right? Because I don't I don't think that. Okay, so if you're going to say have actually, integrity. Nate, hang on, I'm just interjecting. I'm just telling that to everybody else because I want them to do that so I can cut them all up. Yeah, cheers. Yeah. So <laughs> this is all meta. Yeah. So the idea, I guess the idea is like when you're saying uh, have integrity, that implies that if you don't do what you're saying, that you don't have integrity. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of somewhere in between on this because I don't, I don't know. So it's like. Um, you're going to say example, you have integrity I, when you dump a match? Well, there's yes, I could, I could, I could think of a situation. <laughs> if you okay, so if you look at a pool tournament, is how am I going to? It's gambling, right? And when you gamble, you're putting money into something with the hopes and expectations that you get something back from it. I don't go to Vegas and put a hundred dollars down on the Dallas Cowboys to lose, uh, so that I could just lose a hundred dollars. Although I would, that's a guaranteed win, and that's a shot against Nate because the Cowboys suck. But the point is, is whenever you put something in when you're gambling, you're expecting or hoping something to come back. So if uh, Fedor's right there. If I were to buy Fedor in uh, a Calcutta and somehow miraculously I have half of him and I have none of myself and Fedor and I are playing in the finals of the pool tournament. And if I win the tournament, I cost myself $5,000. And if I lose the tournament, I win myself $5,000. I would be stupid if you're trying to maximize your profit out of the pool tournament, which is what gambling is all about. If you're trying to maximize the amount of money that you can win, Based off of that, then why wouldn't you let him win? So, so this is this is uh, the easiest way. The, the word I don't think the word integrity fits into that conversation at all. Well, it, 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 when I, here's, <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> but here's what I think is like when you play poker. Poker is a game of deception where you're trying to like you know there's 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 a there's a game that's established to where you're trying to pick up information. It's totally fine in poker to give off misinformation or to confuse or or mislead your opponent. It's totally fine. But they also have like certain etiquette rules to where certain things are kind of considered off limits or angle shooting or low integrity. And so there's a social. And so the question is, where does the game begin and where does the game end? Where, you know, where being deceptive in, inside of this box is OK, but being deceptive outside of that box is dishonest. And so. Can I, can so I OK, go ahead. Because there's, there's a really, really interesting story. I just saw this video on Facebook and it goes to exactly what you're talking about. This guy who's like his like fourth language is English and he's playing a poker tournament. And Where he says call or he says call, raise yes. and then he puts it. Yeah, yeah. I know yeah, it's yeah. just an angle shooting. Yeah. 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 So, so basically what the guy does is uh, um, he's got the nuts. He's got like quads or a full house or something like that. And he, he's got the nuts on the board. And um, it's a guy makes a bet going into him. And he throws out the chip. He says raise and then throws out the chips to call. 
And he's he's basically pulling a move. Like he was he was saying, oh, 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 I only wanted to call it, making it look like he didn't actually want to raise. But now he's being forced to raise because he said raise. And now he's like, yeah. oh my goodness, like it's English is not my first language. Like he's he's saying this thing, like, oh my God, I didn't want to raise. Oh no, this is gonna cost me money. So he 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 throws like the minimum bet out there. The guy calls snap calls it immediately because he thinks he's he, he thinks he's like accidentally doing this and it turns out he's got a full house and he just cost himself an extra bet where he would have folded had, you know, he, he come over the top and raised him. Yeah. Had but the guy confidently put in a raise, he would have folded, but since he yeah. pretended like it was accidentally being in for you. Yeah. So yeah. this is an example of angle shooting. And so what I'm getting at is there's always a socially, ex- there's, there's the part of the game where we can deceive and play competitively. And then there's the part of the game where it's not the game anymore. And you're supposed to act the way we do it. Like it's almost like in the game, the natural normal rules of society get suspended and we accept that we're going to be fighting and trying to kill each other within this arena. And where's the balance of the arena? And I guess what I'm saying is that's not for me to decide or for Mike to decide that's for society to decide. And I think what we're saying is as a society, we're, we're fighting on the table and we're not fighting to manage your handicaps and we're not fighting to see how we can, you know, win this match or let this person pass. We're not fighting outside of the box of the, uh, the, 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 that the game begins and ends within the rails of the pool table and, and that we shouldn't, we should keep it on the pool table and not, you know, outside of that. That's all. I, but yeah, I don't think, so I guess in my, my, um, my example, do you think it's fair then for me? Let's say I have, Let's say, I mean, let's just go to the absolute extremes. Let's say I have all of Fedor in a 10-ball tournament, and I have none of myself in the first place for the Calcutta is $10,000, and second place is $5,000. So Fedor and I are playing in the finals of this 10-ball event, and if I win, I lose $10,000. And if I lose, I gain whatever the tournament difference is between um, second and first. Do so, you think it's then a, an I have an answer move? for that. Go ahead. I have an answer for that. And by the way, I've by the way, I've been in that exact spot. I had all of Shane and half of me in a big tournament one time, and I played him in the finals and I made more of Shane one. So here's the answer to that. The right thing to do is do everything you can to win. And then that's the right thing to do. Now, now, <laughs> now you can sit there and say, would you do that? Or is there a what if it was a million? And I guess now we're playing this question of like, would you steal if it was for enough money? Would you break the rules for enough money? What's your price? Does everybody have a number? There's certain things like that. But I think my answer to that would be, it's the right thing to do is to play your hardest all the time. And uh, and that if you can't do that because you need the money so bad that you can't afford to put your, then, then, you're, then you probably if, shouldn't put yourself in that spot. What if I need the money to get some naked HD uh, AI data? <laughs> does that change? Does that change the context at all? Tell hey, tell Fetter to quit posting that stuff for crazy. Yeah, I'm gonna have to jump off the stream here, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll be right back. <laughs> Fetter, um, don't you win enough playing pool? You gotta, you gotta try yeah, to get like this Jesus, naked Fetter, HIV. Come on, come on. What's uh, going so here's on? my here's my answer to that, and 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 where this whole discussion started was, and I, I prefaced it by saying. If you're playing, you know, a bar table tournament in, you know, Tennessee, you know, there's to me there's different sets of rules. The integrity part to me comes when you're trying to pan yourself off as a professional sport. If you're a professional sport, Nate, you can't take, you know, you can't be part of the Calcutta. You can't bet on another player in the tournament. All those, all that stuff goes out the window, and that's where the integrity comes into the sport, and and then you don't have to worry about that ever becoming a problem. I, yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think I think that's exactly right. Um, with that being said, 
if you look at a pool tournament not as a way to test your skills against your peers and you look at a pool tournament as a way of generating and making money, I think you're doing a disservice to the idea of that by not maximizing your profits too. But I that's, mean, but that's, that's but here's way. what I would say. Here's what I'd say to that though, is that take you that can into go professional there. tennis, take it into professional, other professional this, sports. This doesn't exist. That that those, work. But this what I'd say is that huh? you can look at it that way. But if you look at it differently than the vast majority of the pool players, then the question is who determines what's right and what's wrong. So for example, if I say, Hey, what if I, I look at it like we have laws and everybody follows laws in our society, but what if I looked at it like I don't follow those laws and I can go rob a bank and as long as I don't get caught, I didn't really do anything wrong. If I look at it that way, I mean, who's to say that my truth isn't as good real as anybody else? It's like, well, here's who's to say is the rest of the people in our society. This is a so we have a social norm and we and we can enforce it socially. So listen, people can define their own morality and they can justify their own behavior, but the rest of us get to say that person is doing something wrong. You don't get to, it's kind of like Louis, Louis CK had a bit about how, you know, somebody's like, yeah, I'm not being an a-hole here. And somebody was like, you don't, he's like, you don't get to decide that. That's not for you to decide if you're being, and that's for other people to decide, you know, it's, it's social conformity. So anyway, I'd say, you know, for one person to rationalize in their mind, why they're optimizing some game by taking advantage of certain things. It's like, they can, they can rationalize it themselves, but ultimately we have as a society, we have the ability to form our own opinions and judgments. And, I think as a society, we've considered that to be not the way pool ought to be. It's like, uh, I, so one, I do agree with what you're saying in a sense of, um, but I think your analogy is bad because if, if you're talking about the breaking the rules, well, there's something that's infrastructurally exists to decide whether or not you're in the wrong there. It's called the court systems, right? So if you do something dumb and you say, well, I think it's okay because I wanted the money and the bank didn't want it so I could take it, right? Well, then you get to go to the courts and they, they get to decide whether or not that is okay. But secondly, uh, you're like the kind of guy that you play Monopoly with and you land on Boardwalk and you got these four little houses on there. And I'm like, you know what? I want you to win because it's going to make me money because we bet on the side that you would win. So I'm not going to take any of your money on those houses for rent. And I'm just going to let you keep going and go past, go past, go collect $200, whatever it is. I don't care. As long as you get to win, that's, that's kind of what that, that ends up being. Right. Um, I don't know. Like I, I, <laughs> I think that, I think that what you're, what you're, you bring up one good point, which is this. I understand that there's a difference between laws, which are very, very well, hopefully well defined, versus societal standards where you have more of a spectrum where you have a majority of people that feel this way and then small groups that feel differently and think, and it's not the consequences of the laws aren't as clearly defined. But, but that's again, man, this all sounds like to me. This sounds like the type of rationalization that somebody that wants to just do what they want to do is going to you know, use to justify their behavior. And in the end, I'm like, you know, there are there are consequences to this stuff, which is that, you know, I know people that justify, you know, all kinds of things. And you know what? In pool, what I love about pool is it's almost like we have a credit system with a we don't have a FICO score like we do with credit reports. But there's like a pool hall street cred where there's certain people I won't play because they're bad action. And there's certain people like, is there a rule made against playing, say, let's play some hundred a game and then I lose one game and I leave and say, I owe you a hundred. Is there a rule against that? Well, there's that's no law against it. So well, who's to say that's not a good strategy? Well, I'll tell you who's to say is everybody else is going to be like, yeah, don't play that guy. 
You know what I mean? And so we have a street cred in the pool world where it's not against the laws, but you can be labeled as bad action. You can be labeled as somebody that you don't want to play or somebody you have to post the money with or somebody that you got to watch or somebody that you don't want to play with on your team. And, and that's how we enforce it. It's like a social credit report. And I would say that people that behave in ways that are outside of the, the norm, which is play on the table, fight it out, give your best and act with integrity, the way society defines it, people that act outside of that, there's not against the law. They get to do what they want to do. But as a society, we get to say, those are bad action. And if I'm a sponsor, I'm not going to sponsor that person. I'm not going to put that guy in a stream. I'm not going to support that person and fundraise for him. I'm not going to invite him onto it. You know what I mean? So that's it. Well, I'll, I mean, I'll say this. Um, one, I still don't like the word of the integrity there because I, I think integrity implies something that you – integrity just – I don't think that it's an unreasonable um, – I don't think it's unreasonable for somebody to want to maximize profits by gambling. Cause that's at the end of the day, you're, you're going to a tournament to gamble. And if, and if you're trying to maximize your profit in that gambling, I don't think that that means that you don't have integrity. If that is your sole goal and a, in, in a, in a Saturday tournament, uh, whatever it is. But with all this being said, like, honestly, like I agree with both of you too. I'm just trying to try to get the devil's advocate I, argument. I understand. The problem is the problem is I did this one time too. Uh, by the way, Josh and I were playing in a tournament. We had all of Josh and only half of me in the Calcutta. And Josh and I got to the finals. So we're chopping. So we've already won first and second in this tournament. And now it's a matter of do we get all of first and half a second or all of second and half of first. So we made more money if Josh won. So I let Josh win because I was thinking about it that way you talked about it. Like, well, you know, optimizing our money, it's better if Josh wins. And on the way home, I just wasn't really – I'd never been in that spot before. I made what I consider to be a horrible mistake by doing that. I realized that – yeah, I'm optimizing my money, but by A, by throwing a match, and B, I'm taking money from the guy that bought me in the Calcutta. That's what I'm doing. So it was actually, uh, I, I, you know, we all know the guy. Uh, I could tell you who it was. He's from Wisconsin. So I, I felt really bad. So I called him on my way home, and I was like, bro, I'm sorry, man. I'm wrong. And so what I ended up doing is we figured out what half of first and second would have averaged to in the Calcutta, and I paid him half the difference because that seemed – and he was okay with that. I offered him – like I asked if that was okay. We worked it out. He was fine. He actually was glad that I called him and talked to him about it. So, yeah. But, yeah, it was the wrong thing for me to do, and I hadn't been in that spot before. I hadn't thought it through. So now I have thought it through. So I'm here to tell everybody else that finds themselves in spots like that, just just play hard. I, I don't I, disagree. I, and I've, I've, I found myself in that spot too. I've never done what you've done, but I, I mean, I've thought about it a ton of times. And to be honest with you, I've been in, I've been in tournaments in the finals where I never had the discussion with it. I don't have a road dog like you do where like, I, I kind of go halvesies with it. I just kind of play with my, for myself. Um, but I've been in the situation where I've played uh, players in the finals that I've had in the Calcutta and uh, you know, all of them. And I've had that situation is what I'm trying to say. And I've, I've never, I've never done that. But in my head, I've thought it. And if you're thinking about it in the back of your head, you can't play your, you know, maybe maybe it makes you play more free and maybe you play better. Maybe you play worse because you don't really care if you win or not. I mean, but as long as you try, as long as you give it your best, it's OK. You're human. You're going to be distracted yeah. by these thoughts. But as long as you do your best, that's that's what matters. And uh, I think I remember twice where it's happened, where there was like an $80 difference. It was just like a. A little open tournament there was like 17 or 18 players or something like that and i i didn't have any of myself in the calcutta and i had half of the other person and i ended up uh losing that one so i ended up making money but then i had it in another situation where it was actually like six or seven hundred dollars that was a difference and um that that cost me six or seven hundred bucks and i and i won that one cost myself the money and then got tipped out 
better than I would have ever thought I would have because of that situation. So, well, one I, one last question: Do the rules change if you're a professional and you're doing this for a living? Yes. Oh, okay. I'm I'm joking, absolutely. Nate. That's, that's no, okay. just, I, absolutely. Well, the, well, this goes back <laughs> to what Mike and and we're kind of. But you know what I'm talking about. You well, know what I'm talking about. But Mike Mike was one who made this perfect. Uh, you know, earlier, like this doesn't happen in other sports. This isn't available in other sports. Like this only exists in the world of pool, basically that I know of, anyways. Um, Calcutta doesn't exist in tennis. Nobody's walking up to Tiger Woods and asking him if he wants half of himself in a, in the masters, <laughs> like that just doesn't exist. Right. But that happens all the time in this game. It, it's just different, right? There's, there's no place for stuff like this on the national scene, uh, or at least the right. world scene. You know, at this consider, level, at this level, it should just not even be a discussion. You know, if they want to yeah. talk about with like the, the European open, you know, and U S open, yeah, yeah, like no it shouldn't even be a discussion. I don't think that it doesn't have to happen, but the player should have nothing to do with it, right? The player shouldn't get an option to buy their half. If you if you want to have a no, you, obviously you can you can do whatever you want, but you know, and you can do that in other sports. You can bet on whatever yeah, you want. Exactly. You can cover your exactly. bet by betting against yourself, and so. But sure. you don't ever allow anybody who can control results, Bingo. yeah, yeah, to have any part of any any kind of action. I mean, that's just, that's professional sports. If they ever want to get on TV, if they ever want to have sponsors outside the billiard industry, if they ever want to be legit, um, the first yeah. thing people are going to investigate is, are you guys on the square? Yep. Bingo. Yep. I, I agree. Uh, I guess we're talking about basically like, like you said, the, that tournament in Iowa, right? <laughs> that's yeah. like a, yeah. So, uh, so getting back to Pia and and Josh, yeah. if one of them forfeited, they should get fined. Hundred percent, hundred percent, fine. It affects um, the whole field. It affects the other with players. You, I don't like affects... the I don't like the idea of them getting fined. I I would actually, to be honest with you, I would be okay with them being disqualified out of the tournament, which is like a fine, right? But I would not. I would not like the idea of them being fined. But I. I would if somebody yeah, came. Whatever. And, uh, I mean, you're disqualified from the tournament. Fine. Yeah. For sure. the you know you're disqualified for the integrity of the game. Uh, you're 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 questioning the integrity of the tournament and the match and the, the industry as a whole. You're going to be disqualified from this tournament. Uh, I would be okay. I would be much more okay with that than if Josh said I forfeit to Pia and then somebody turns around and says, "All right, well, that's going to cost you ten thousand dollars." That sounds weird to me, but again, that's just a preference thing. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, if you're trying to maximize your profit in a tournament, though, uh, it wouldn't. I don't think it would be un. I don't think it would be a bad idea for Josh to let Pia go through, depending on who's waiting on the other side. I mean, he's not going to want to do it if you know Jason or somebody like that is waiting on the B side for him. But you know, if he's playing some no name from. I don't know, pick a country and doesn't think that he can lose to him. Why wouldn't you take a swing at it? Well, maybe my, cool, I, my cool thing thoughts on this. I don't think that maximizing your profit at a tournament should be the goal. I think your goal should be maximizing your performance in the tournament. But I also think that people are going to be tempted. So therefore I think that the tournament directors and our pool society's job is to set up the incentive structure and to set up the tournament structure to where playing your best is going to, maximize your profits sure. and so that the problem that's why when we start getting into calcuttas when we get into handicaps when we get into divisions and skill differences and all these things then then and teams and all this it's it's very inside betting there's a lot of avenues that can that can split to where what's best for profit no longer aligns with best performance and the closer that we can align 
best profit is going to be your best performance, the less of this we're going to see. And so it's all about incentives. And I think it's the tournament director and society's job to set it up to where people are incentivized to just do their best. And I think at the top levels, that is generally the case uh, because the value of a reputation when you're a top player invisible and playing in pro tournaments, you don't want to lose sponsors. You don't want to lose invitations. You don't want to, it's not worth screwing around for. And, and I think that at the amateur level, the better the tournament directors can set it up is the best. Yeah. Yep. I agree. And I, I do want to reiterate that I was playing devil's advocate on that. I agree with basically everything that was said, but I, I, I don't think that it's it's completely ludicrous to think that there could be a different side to that, um, but absolutely not at a level like this. No way. But uh, I don't know. Let's. Uh, we probably lost uh, Fedor, but let's let's talk nice about Fedor for a while. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, don't, don't. He's you know his 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 antenna will go up as soon as his name's mentioned, so he'll hop yeah. back on if he's off. Well. So uh, let's 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 take a look at this. Um, he has now beaten the brakes off of. I can you make a top five U.S. one pocket player list without having Chip and Scott on? I mean, just a U.S. list. U.S. I, I one pocket, yeah, probably. Yeah, uh, of course. Yeah, they're probably they're both on that list. Yeah, I and, would and, think that they would both be on it. Maybe you want to maybe you want to say Scott isn't quite there anymore, but I still think that you know there's a pretty. I still think that yeah. Scott absolutely should be on it, but sure. Um, and he's beaten the brakes off of both of them. Tony yeah. is the last American left that I that theoretically would have a chance. What do you guys think? Do you think I don't? I don't think well, Tony can get there. Not, yeah, Fetter's only going to get Fetter's only going to get better. And you know that the discussion with playing Chip was the game's going to be different when he plays Chip. This Chip's going to push all the balls to the top of the table, and it's going to be a whole different. You know, it's not going to be these runouts, whatever. And and Fetter just tortured him. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, listen, the kid can uh, can play anything he wants to play at a level that's right up there with the top in the world. You know, uh, he could start playing, you know, Carom tomorrow, and by Thursday he'd be giving some pretty good players a run for their money. So um, it's you know, it, yeah, he's he's just a beast. Uh, and Tony, yeah, Tony's probably the only one who can give him any kind of game at this point in the U.S. I don't, and I don't, I don't know that he can. I, I, I don't think that. I mean, if they played the same game that Tony or that um, Chip and Fedor just played, I, I, I struggle to see a situation where even Tony gets past twenty. I, Fedor's just special. I mean, it's just sick. Demetrius, what? Uh, yeah, and so Federer's watching. I mean, I got to play him a set in January, and it was still one of my favorite sets I've gotten to play in pool. He he controlled. I mean, there's a level of striking that is just different. It's just different. And you're right. You know, uh, as the game has evolved to a more offensive game, as it's as the moves and the strategies. Uh, you know, if this was the if this was the seventies, to where the only way to learn one pocket was by playing it for 10 or 15 years and matching up and all this stuff for many years. The learning curve was longer back when there was a knowledge, you know, an, an information deficit. And so a, a, so a player that was a top player that was going to start playing one pocket would be at a disadvantage to, to the, you know, one pocket specialists for a longer stretch. But nowadays, you know, the books have been published, the videos are out there. People can watch all the one pocket matches on YouTube. And, and, and within a matter of, you know, if a player plays, I mean, Federer's, you know, for anybody that plays Derby a couple times and plays some one pocket tournaments, uh, you know, the learning curve, like 
let's I think here's an interesting question. Let's pick a, a, a player that strikes the balls as well or very close, like like Victor. Alex or how, oh. how long would it take Victor to get to the point where he could beat Chip? How long of playing one pocket? Like how many months? If he made a if he made a focus on learning one pocket and playing one pocket, how many months of playing pool and playing focusing on one pocket until he wins? Is it five years? Is it two years? Is it five, six months? I think it's closer to six than it is anything. I mean, if he dedicated 100% effort, right? And so, yeah, I, so I think that, go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It, it, you know, a lot of it to me comes to down to uh, Fetter is just obviously incredibly bright and a real sponge when it comes to knowledge. Um, and that's, you know, were there better ball strikers than Efren? Yeah. But when Efren got into one pocket, he's so smart and so calculating. And so, you know, that he, you know, improved exponentially more quickly than most other players who were as good as a ball striker, say, as, as he is, or better than him. So I think a lot of it comes down to what's between your ears, too. Um, and I think in that, in that cat, and I have no idea what's between Alex's ears or whatever, or Victor's ears. I just know that Fetter is obviously incredibly, uh, sharp, uh, mind. Um, you know, he, he, he just seems to absorb that stuff. So, um, you know, I don't, I think that that's a, there's a, you know, it, it's, a, it's a little harder than to analyze other players and say, how long would they take them to get to, to that level? Yeah, it's Fedor is, you know, one of a kind. And so, but yeah, to get to your point though, Nate, I mean, I think that the top strikers in the game now have such a control with the cue ball and control over the balls. They're knowledgeable. They understand not just one pocket, which they understand, but they also understand, you know, the absent the flows of matches and the mental game and, and being able to control all the balls and how the balls react. And I just, you know, fillers run so many balls in straight pool. So like, I think uh, who's, okay, who are the top, like, does a U.S. player have a top five in the world? Because right now, if I had to pick, I think, you know, I think that Fedor, Filler, and Dennis would be like my top three in the world right now with Alex fighting to get into that top three, maybe being, you know, maybe he could pass one of them and be third or something. Like, but I think those are my top fours. Alex, Dennis, Filler, and Fedor. For one Who's, pocket? Yeah. You put in Filler pocket. in your top five for one pocket right now? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I, I mean, after watching watching Johan, yeah. I think I, I mean I think Tony's. Um, I, I think I, I mean I, th I still think that Alex, Alex and Dennis are the only players I think that can give Fedor a, a game at this point. I don't. I mean, if you look at Fedor, just beat Chip Compton twenty-four to twelve. We uh, Tony beats Chip even up by let's say six games. Let's so let's just give Tony six more games against Fedor. I mean that that looks like twenty-four to eighteen to me. Like if if. Tony plays his best game. I just don't see how he can make up six games. Uh, but with that being said, like, I guess putting Josh in there is a bold statement. Josh doesn't seem to be interested in the game at all, but he's such a an elite striker of the well, ball. Didn't, didn't he play Chohan in a long one-pocket set and he just ran through him, right? No, they, it was 24 to 21 by the end okay. of it. And it was on – and it was on uh, – it was um, – I commentated that match with Alex lately, and we – we, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was on a super, uh, loose table. It was, well, for one pocket standards, it was loose. I think it was four and a four and a half inch pockets. It was a pro cut table that, uh, 
um, Roy Roy's basement, and I think that's four and a half. It was one of the U.S. Open tables. Uh, I mean, you, I mean, you just tighten up the table to four inches or four and a quarter inches, and I think that it makes that game completely different. Okay, but I, I think I don't know. I, I think that Tony, if you don't put Tony on your top five list in the world, I think that's, I think that's pretty, pretty rough. I think I think he's I think he's comfortably on it. I would say, Mike. Yeah, fair enough. I'm not saying he wouldn't be. I just think he might be fifth. <laughs> I, I, I'd bet mm-hmm. Filler. I'd bet Federer. I'd bet Dennis. I'd bet Alex. I, I think the only person on there that I could argue with is maybe Filler. Right. Maybe. I mean, I I can't take – I love Tony, but I can't take him anywhere close to uh, Fader with what, with what I'm seeing. I don't know that – I don't know that uh, Dennis or Alex get there at this point, but they're the only, they're the only two players that can. I think it would have to be Dennis because I think yeah. I think that Dennis is still striking at an elite level, and I think Alex the last couple of years, um, I'm not sure that his striking is. You know, I don't think he has the advantage in striking that he used to. But I'll tell you, I was watching. To be fair, I'm not saying Alex can't win. I mean, I trust me. I was ringside watching Alex hit the balls. He still he still strikes the balls as well as anybody. Uh, you know, in terms of like executing the cue ball maneuvers and the crispness of the hit. But I just think that Dennis. Uh, Dennis is like, if, if I'll put it this way, if Dennis and Alex played rotation, I think Dennis gets there. And I think just that little half step of execution is going to help Dennis carry the day against Tony uh, or against, you know, like if I think Dennis would have a little bit better chance against better just because he's striking him just a little tiny bit better. But my reaction wasn't uh, my re- my reaction to that wasn't because of your statements about Alex. It was about Dennis. I mean, Dennis, the last time we saw Dennis, we were- uh, but we haven't seen Dennis. When did he? When did he get? Um, was it back in March or February yeah, yeah. that he got? Uh, he got booted out of the country. No, it was Mike? earlier than that. I was think it was earlier than that. I think it was uh, end of January, beginning of February, wasn't it? But anyway, it doesn't yeah, could have been. Well, I mean, the the only time that we've seen him since uh, twice, we saw him at the UK Open, where he didn't really do anything. Um, of Dennis's standard and then playing against David Al-Qaeda and he lost to David Al-Qaeda too. Not saying that he can't lose to David Al-Qaeda, but nobody's going to say if that was like a real match for a hundred thousand. You know, I think, I think the general thought on Dennis is that Dennis plays, Dennis isn't interested unless there's a lot of money on the line. Right. And now he's sitting at home trying to get visa issues sorted out gets turned away at the immigration office. I just don't think his heart or his head's really into playing top level, big money pool right now. Sure. Um, again, just a, just a hunch, just a you know, speculation because I, I have no idea. I'm not there, but um, it wouldn't surprise me if that's the case with him right now. So it's kind of hard to judge him at this point. Well, you're, and you're right about one thing, Mike, is that, you know, I, I guess I didn't, I wasn't really thinking about it until you bring it up, but like, Dennis and Alex are both in their 40s. You know, Fedor, he's hungry. And so just on that, I think I don't know that there's anyone I would bet on over Fedor right now, just from a from a you know fire and and striking and hunger and just peak performance. I just how would you it's it'd be really hard to want to bet against Fedor on anything and against anybody. I I can't argue. I I mean I'm still gonna take Tony or I'm still gonna take Alex over Tony until I can you know, see Tony take that from him because uh, and then we're not going to see Dennis anytime soon. Probably it looks like at this point. So I guess for the for the two people that are um, viewable, 
the top two are Alex and Fedor, and I, I don't know that I don't know that anybody can get there with Fedor right now. <laughs> I just well, let's, so let's throw out the other name because there was another one pocket match with Roberto Gomez versus Corey Duell. And they played a best. They played seven uh, best of seven sets, races to five. So they played races to five, and one pocket until somebody won four sets. And uh, Roberto Gomez won four sets to two with a total game score of twenty-eight to twenty against Corey Duell. Now Roberto Gomez has lost to Chip Compton last time they played that I can remember, and you know he has. Uh, so he he didn't ever establish that he was. You know, if he's losing a chip and Chip can't get there with a top five, you know, Chip's probably in the top 10. So then, you know, I figured Roberto was kind of like, you know, level down, but he's been playing a lot. He's striking the balls well. Where's he at? Is he, is Roberto in the top 10? Is he knocking on the door of the top five? Where's he at these days? I mean, I, I was really high on Roberto Gomez for, I mean, I guess pre COVID, uh, I thought that there was three players who had comfortably set themselves apart from the rest of the world. Um, for my money. And that was in order, Alex, Dennis, and Boosty. Uh, we haven't seen Boosty for three years, something like that too, since COVID basically. Um, so, I mean, you almost got to remove him just for by default, but I thought that Roberto was the one player who Roberto and or, sorry, Tony and Roberto were the two players that were within sniffing range of those three players. And, I, I then Roberto just got the break speed off him by uh, Chip, and I didn't see that coming. I I mean, we lost money on that, if I'm not mistaken, Demetrius. Yeah, we probably, <laughs> we probably lost a little something. Yeah, I think we lost a little money on that one. So I, I, I mean, Roberto hasn't played a ton of one pocket since. So this is the first he, matchup I think that he's played since he got beat up on by uh, um, Chip. Chip, if I'm not mistaken. I'll tell you what, it would be really interesting to see him rematch Chip. On the one hand, I think Roberto is going to be better prepared and play better. But on the other hand, Chip is playing as well as he can. I mean, he's Chip's really playing phenomenal. So just because he lost a Fedor, I, that's a, I mean, trust me, that's that doesn't mean anything because that 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 means he's not that means he's not the best in the world. That's all that means is that Chip's not number one in the world. But um, but yeah, I think that I'd love to see a rematch. I wonder if they rematch. Who would you bet on a rematch between Gomez and Chip? I've come to the conclusion I'm never betting on Chip no matter what. <laughs> Both before. I mean, so uh, Melina Mike hasn't been on the show for a little while, but uh, if, if you ask him who he hates more than anybody else in the world betting against, it's Mika. Like Mika is like, he loses so much money betting against Mika. And that's like me with Chip. I like whether I'm betting on him or against him, no matter, no matter what it is, I'm on the wrong side of it. Always. <laughs> I just stopped uh. betting anything chip i'm done don't you know don't you know that it's unlucky to be superstitious okay no, no that's uh <laughs> that uh i've anyway i i think that if they rematch it's hard to say i think chip is playing really 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 good one pocket um i think it would be i'll tell you what i think it's going to be a very close match if they replayed i think that gomez is probably playing better than he was and that uh he has a very good striking game but it's chip Chip plays phenomenal one pocket, man. So I think it would be a tough game. I think that Gomez is probably in the top 10, but so is Chip. And I think it's kind of like trying to figure out, you know, is Chip sixth or is Chip eighth, you know? And I think they're both kind of in that, you know, sixth to eighth kind of range. Yeah, I agree. That's yeah, that's probably where I place them too. I don't know. Um, I guess I'm, I'm watching here the uh, – I kind of went over to the OmegaBilliards.com page and was just glancing kind of at this. And the last day – Fedor Gorst won eight racks to one. 
I mean, there's got to be a give up factor in there. There's got to yeah, be there's at some point in time. That's what I was just going to say. I mean, but, that's, um, that's one of those fold up the tent and go home deals. Yeah, like get me out of here fast. Right? Yeah. yeah. But um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm happy that all the matchroom stuff is going on because while I like one pocket and I, I just can't get enough pool content, uh, I from seeing the production and the, the class that is put into matchroom events and – to a lesser degree, ah, not even a big lesser degree, but a slightly lesser degree, the Predator Tours uh, stops. These like little point of camera at a table, one pocket matchups. Um, and Omega Billiards <laughs> actually does a little bit. They, they do they do do a little bit better at it than, than some, but like the idea of this point of camera at a pool table and like charge $20 or $30 for the, the matchup is like, it's nuts to me. I, I, I've just never really had interest in watching those anyways. You know, I want to see real tournaments with real players and, and real conditions. And, you know, that's, that's, that's what I follow. That's what I enjoy. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the events like, you know, the European great looking forward to, uh, you know, the next four days, not getting a lot of work done and watching a lot of pool. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and really, I mean, I, you know, one thing we didn't talk about with the European open and the U S open coming up, is that uh, these are like moving day tournaments for Europeans trying to get a Moscone Cup, right? Because you can be way down on the list right now and you get into that top six here or something like that or top eight, you know, you've made a move. Uh, so it's really going to be interesting to see who comes out of this because that's really going to set up the U.S. Open really nicely in terms of – and, I, you know, it's, it's that scoreboard watching is just a lot of fun when, when there's so much at stake. And there's just a lot more at stake with the European players uh, than there are with the U.S. players. So, um, you know, uh, it's going to be interesting to see who comes out of here, having made any big moves on the on the chart for European Moscone Cup, and uh, it'll it'll really set up that that U.S. Open really well. There's a couple of more tournaments in between that, but they're the you know the five thousand dollar first prize type of thing that's not going to you know yeah. move the needle a whole heck of a lot. The year uh, tour that Francisco Sanchez Ruiz won that I guess none of us are talking about either. Yeah, kind of like kind of like that. Uh, the one that was yeah, the one that's prize money was you know just slightly under the uh, junior event that Ernesto ran out in Sacramento. So um, <laughs> so it's you know it, you know for the for the Europeans big deal for the U.S. Let me ask you this: Where's Billy Thorpe? Mm. So he just figure he's got it dialed in, so he doesn't need to go to the European Open. Why? Did, yeah. Why does he need to? I don't know. If Jeremy's already told him he's in, then I guess he doesn't need to. It, it would be a shame. But um, well, at, at some point in time in the U.S., who are you going to take over him? People who are trying. <laughs> I, I'm not arguing, but <laughs> I mean, I got I got myself in a lot of trouble uh, for picking on Greg Hogue, uh, and it was totally just a joke. I love you, I love you man. I love you, man. I really was a joke, but like, are, are you going to, I mean, if I, if I went to all these tournaments and tried my absolute damnedest to, to get in onto team USA, do I deserve it more than Billy Thorpe? Who's put a lifetime worth of work into this and is just coasting more than normal. I mean, it's not like Billy Thorpe hasn't worked to get to the level he's at. He just hasn't worked in the last eight months. And are you going to take somebody like me who is, Let's obviously I'm not at that level, but I'm not far behind the players who you are talking about that are trying, right? I mean, I'm not that far behind those players, and 
I am a mile behind Billy Thorpe, <laughs> a, a mile. <laughs> like I'm so far behind them. So, well, you know that it's to me it's a dangerous game too, though. Then because you is. know well, what happens if what happens if all the points things go to not Sky, and that you know now all of a sudden you're using now you got to pick between Billy and Sky with your only wild card pick. Okay, then oh, then, then Billy yeah. then Billy play you know didn't play himself out of a spot. So well, theoretically, um, there's two wild card picks, right? So, yeah, there are. What about uh, Shane, what about never gonna, Shane's never going to be a wild card pick? Right? No, they know absolutely that. not. So, uh, so you're and looking theoretically, at, you know, Sky shouldn't be either, right? I mean, the the idea that Sky's going to need to be a wild card is like blasphemous. Like, what the hell? Like, over the course of the year, what is what is the U.S. right now? Uh, let me actually take a look. I, I, I last I checked, it was like four thousand dollars was in the USA. Like that that got you in. So yeah, so someone has a good European Open, someone has a good U.S. Open, and all of a sudden you can put some people in your rearview mirror in a hurry, you know, an Oscar, or you know, someone like that, right? Tyler uh, at this point, right? Tyler, yeah. you know, to, to a lot of people, Tyler's not even in the conversation. Well, meanwhile, he has a big tournament here or at the U.S. Open, and you know. Oscar Dominguez right now is second place in the U.S. with seven thousand dollars. Okay, and then so Sky now Woodward is number three with five thousand seven hundred. Okay, there, so Shane one good Wolford, one good tournament in these one good one good tournament between European and U.S. Open, and all of a sudden those guys are hoping for a wild card. Sure. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, you know, it's like I said, I like guys who chase it. We've had this argument, you know, in terms like of too, with but... Team USA with Team Europe. Is he an automatic pick for Team Europe, even though he hasn't played? Probably, but I like you know I would always defer to the guys who are who are out there swinging every day. I, yeah, I don't I don't necessarily argue with that, but there there is a scary thought to the idea that uh, working really really hard and being at every single one of the events uh, automatically qualifies you to represent the USA. No, no, it doesn't. It just gives food for thought for the guy sure. who's making the picks to say, you know what? I like this guy's work ethic. I like the way he's improved over the last year. I could see it on, an on a tournament by tournament basis because he played in all these tournaments. Uh, I'm sure. not just guessing. So, you know, there, there's a lot to be said for that, I think. I mean, you know, who the hell knows? I, I don't disagree. Yeah. I mean, looking at this, um, Billy Thorpe is currently seventh in the U.S., with $4,300. So he's behind uh, Nick DeLeon and Greg uh, Greg Hogue, as well as Oscar and Sky and Shane. So, yeah. and Shane, Shane Wolford. So yeah. I don't know. I guess <clears throat> at the end of the day, I love, I, I mean, I love to see uh, the players on here like Shane Wolford, Greg Hogue, Nick DeLeon, where, you know, these are the type of players who are, you know, they're just doing everything that they can to grind their way into. And that's that's I like I like those guys getting it. rewarded, yeah. you know, as long as they've shown that they can beat some top players and finish, you know. And what is it? Yeah. So if 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 Shane Wolford and uh, uh, Oscar have good tournaments here or in U.S. Open, I'll just, you know they can they get a ten thousand dollar bump or something like that. Then it's 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 makes makes the uh, wildcard picks really interesting. Do you well, and, and, yeah, and I just wanted to just mention what is it and what does it do to the guys like Wolford and how when 
if they feel that they can't get chosen because if they don't take exactly top three, they'll never even be considered because well, well, we're just gonna, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that was the well, argument that's always gone on in the U.S. over years when it was all wildcard picks and they just kept picking the same buddy system type stuff. And, yeah. and it's the argument that I made, you know, against Fetter for Team Europe. What does it say to a, a Wichter Zelinski or some of these guys who are beating their brains against the best players in the world every week? And you know, are are up there and winning here, but but they're gonna get passed over for someone who and in right. Fetter's defense, so you need, he didn't have a choice. He didn't have a choice this year. So, yeah. you know, but but when you look when I look at someone like Billy, I'm like, geez, what's you know, what's well, the problem? I would I would say in Fedor's defense, he didn't have a choice. Yeah. And 100%. no one's gonna question he's probably the best player in the world right now, or at yeah. least top no, three. Yeah, no, I don't think <laughs> I don't think Wichter's gonna say, listen, I'm as good as Fetter, pick me because yeah. I played in all these tournaments. It's not gonna yeah. happen. But it's you know, it's just it's one of those interesting dilemmas that a that a captain gets you know, gets himself put into when he's gotta make these picks, especially when you have a continent as strong as, as Europe. So let me ask you this question. Do you think Jeremy Jones is begging for somebody like uh, a Shane Wolford? Or maybe an Oscar Dominguez, or 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 a Nick DeLeon, or a Greg Hogue. Do you think he's begging for one of those types of players to make it into the top three, so he could end up potentially using that wild card pick on a Sky Woodward and a Billy Thorpe? Um, I don't know. Play. I don't know if he's rooting. For, I don't think he would be rooting for it for that reason, because he could always pick them as a as a wild card well, too well, if he well, wanted on, to. So, but that goes into what I'm saying is like at the end of the day, like if you have, let's say your three qualifiers are Shane, Sky, and Billy, you now have to take two wild card picks, right? And now you're picking between players who theoretically don't have to be there as far as uh, your. So you're your, saying there's more controversy. controversy. Well, I'm I'm saying that if if you have no choice but to have a player like that on the team and you're able to then pick uh Billy and Sky for your uh your wild cards and let's say Greg Hogan uh Nick Day or uh, Nick DeLeon make it as number 2 and number 3 and now you get to pick Shane and Scott uh, uh Sky and uh Billy well now who wouldn't pick those two with your wild cards right if, if what are you concerned team- about controversy over the picks because you, you end up with the same five guys either way to me whether if well, if, I, if you I had Shane know, Sky no, and I- Billy as 1 2 3 you know, you're still probably going to end up picking an Oscar and a, a Nick DeLeon or a Shane Wolford is your, well, is your wild card anyway. So what I'm saying is your, your wild card picks are exactly obvious if it's Sky and Billy. If it's past that, do you I think that they, I think that if you're Jeremy Jones, what you're rooting for at this point, what you're begging for at this point is for those other guys to show progress and strong results going down the stretch so that he's confident that they're ready to play whether when he picks them either as wild cards or as as numbers guys as as automatic qualifiers you know what you want is guys who are improving and on a hot streak and playing well and having knocked some guys off i think he'd much rather have that than um than to than to have the luxury of of you know picking billy as a wild card you know because he hasn't beaten anybody all year sure but what i'm saying is uh, well, let, let's ask you that question. Do you think? Do you think? So let's create a hypothetical situation where um, Shane, Sky, and Billy uh, are your your three, no, one through three. Right. You have a wild card of two. Do you yeah. think? Do you think of the, the the pool of players that you're talking about there? Do you think that any of them will be playing well enough, or you know, have those scalps or have the performance to to easily justify that pick? 
that's what Jeremy's hoping for. They do, you know, and and you, you go I'm with the two. You, you go the you go with the you go with the two that do. If they don't have those scalps or they don't have those results, you're gonna probably pick them anyways because the guys who aren't playing, you know, you have no you have no barometer, no gauge on them at all, right? So, um, so yeah, I mean, Jeremy's hoping that these guys make the his choice easy by playing well enough. He's got two guys. He's looking for two guys that are playing well enough to say. I'll take these guys into battle with me. But what I'm asking is, do you think that's going to happen? Because that's that's a pretty big that's no a clue. pretty big ask. <laughs> no clue. I mean, we'll find out in this tournament. We'll find out at the in the U.S. Open whether a Shane Wolford can put two good tournaments together in a row. Whether a Tyler Steyer can put two good tournaments together in a row. And that could be finishing top sixteen. Um, you know, it could be you know just showing some. You know, these guys are getting better. These guys deserve a shot at at this. That's what he's going to be rooting for, and and I, you know, we'll see we'll see what happens. You know, can Oscar have two good tournaments in a row? Sure. You know, so that's yeah. what that's as U.S. fans, that's what we're going to hope for is that a couple of these guys make some strong finishes over the next few tournaments, and and you know, what is a strong finish count. for you? Uh, you know, for 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 an Oscar, I mean, certainly if you you know, uh, top sixteen or quarterfinals would be fantastic, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I would yeah, go with I, that and I'd go for that in a heartbeat. That'd be for anybody. Yeah. I mean I, I expect those I expect at least three of those guys to get into the final sixty four. So then can they win two matches in the final sixty four? That would be against pretty good competition. I would say that they're showing progress and I and I'd I'd be pretty um you know confident about them having you know, having a decent shot in Moscone Cup. I would, I would. I if they all fall on your face, if they all fall on your face, then maybe he looks at someone like Tony Chohan. Who the hell knows? Yeah, well, that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, like, I don't think that any of these players have a chance at this, but I mean, if, if I got to be real and, you know, I, you know, my job here, I guess, is to, to give my honest commentary. I think the over under on, uh, two players outside of somebody named Shane or Sky making the quarterfinals of anything is next to zero. Yeah, quarterfinals, yeah, that would be like a miracle. But final eight, you know, uh or or even the top thirty two, I think it's I think it's very unlikely. Yeah, Jeremy Solsi got top sixteen at the world championship. Uh, he's playing really well yeah. too. I I uh I think I think a couple of those guys could hit top sixteen if they catch a good if they catch a good gear and, and play well. And that's and that's, what you're, that's what you're rooting for at this point, right? Is to show well, I'm hoping show, so, me yeah. that, show me that you're gonna be a good player come Moscone. Yeah, at the U.S. Open, we had a U.S. player take top 16. Oh, oh no, 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 never mind, never mind. I was thinking John Bora, forget it. Um, never mind. But, <laughs> no, like, I think like like Bergman and Oscar, they've got, you know, final 16, final eight. Yeah. Well, Bergman it's will not, never, you'll never see Bergman again. No, never see Bergman again. And Oscar, final eight, that might be asking a lot. Uh, but, you know. I think I think if there's one person that, that can get final 16 or – Potentially even final eight. I think it's Oscar. I think that's that's the list of names right there. I yeah, love it. to see it. You, you just named it. Love to see it. So. Um, do I, I mean I I'm I, I would love to. I'm rooting for Greg. I'm rooting for Nick. I'm rooting for Shane. I, I think they're all phenomenal ambassadors for the game, and I think that they're doing a lot of great things by going to every single one of these events, putting their head down, whining about nothing, and just playing the playing the damn game. I mean, it's refreshing to see that from our U.S. players, but that doesn't that doesn't make them an 800 Fargo. They're, you know, it, it, I mean, that at the end it's of the day, tough out there. it's pretty tough. It's, it's out brutal. There. Yeah, it's brutal. I mean, they're going to they're going to have to, you know, be beating some really great players to get into that. And I, I, I'd love to see it. But 
I mean, if yeah. we're we're up against it, uh, the odds. Yeah, no, of course, and we've been up against it for the past twelve years. I could see a situation um, and, where and, where uh, I would I could see a situation there though that uh, Jer Jeremy Jones would feel a little bit of relief, even getting one wild card pick be something like Sky. I could see where he could get some relief there because he can say, well. You know, this is what I got. This is the players that made it in. There's nothing. Oh, he I would. Can do. He would love. He would love that. Like I said, for no other as much as anything, because that means that one of those guys earned the points. Sure. Well, I <laughs> so mean, which I means he's got to be playing pretty well to earn the points to be in the the top three. I I definitely. I mean, I definitely agree with that. But the idea is like, uh, right, like I said, the right now five thousand dollars gets you in. You know. You know what's funny? I never thought about this, but what do you what, think? What do you think the prize money? One by the top five Europe versus the top five US will look well, that's like. That's kind of well, what I'm. That's, that's ultimately kind of what I'm what's getting. What's the at. what gets you in for Europe right now? Uh, twenty thirty one thousand dollars, thirty two thousand dollars. Thirty one's number number three. Thirty one point eight is Albin Ocean. Thirty one thousand eight hundred. Okay. Francesco Sanchez Ruiz has forty two five twenty, and Josh has sixty two five twenty. What's four and five? Uh, twenty three thousand Alex Kazakis and twenty thousand Oliver Solnaki. So twenty, yeah, and, okay. and nineteen thousand yeah. is Victor Zelinsky. Mario, he's at eighteen thousand six. Jason Shaw's at eighteen thousand two. Neil's fine, sixteen thousand three. <laughs> Max Lechner, fourteen thousand two. When you hear so, these names and you hear that prize money, I know this is not new information, but like that's kind of sad. <laughs> it is. I mean, it is sad. But when you look at it and say that our top, our, our you know, our number two or three guy is into fives. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's, yeah. Even, that's even sadder. And then I look at the names of this next tournament at the Sandcastle Open. I'm just like, man, am I glad I don't have to play these guys for, to fight over ten or fifteen grand? Oh my gosh! Oh, yeah, good stuff. Right on. There's, there are 23 European players between number one and number two for the U.S. Okay. So, I mean, down to well, 23 players. And that's so. There's 23 players between Shane Van Boning and uh, Oscar Dominguez. Yeah. Okay. And then there's another. And that matches ten. Fargo rate almost exactly. If you look at Fargo rate, you look at where Shane's at, then you look at the next U.S. player. It's kind of right. I mean, very similar. Yeah. Good times. Well. And I will say one thing uh, before we wrap up is that, you know, you're talking about these one pocket matches and one camera. I like it. So the thing for me about, I, I think that there's something for everyone. I love the European champion. I love the, I love the championships. I love watching the final four, final eight of these matchroom events and all this, but I also like the one pocket matchups where you get to look at like a Gomez versus a chip or a Fedor versus a, you know, um, a chip, you know, where you get to see like, okay, you've got the, you know, the experience and the moving versus the striking where you've got the offense versus the, the experience. And then you get to see how those match up. And then you get to see them over days where, okay, day one, it went this way. How do they adjust their strategy for day two? And what do they try to do to mix it up? Uh, I like that type of thing. And I think that you don't get that when you watch, you know, championship nine ball where everybody plays the same run out game. And then it's a matter of, you know, the break, the strike and, and a couple key shots. I, I trust me, I'm not minimizing match room and, and top tournament play. I love it, love it, love it. But I think that there's, there's just different ways to enjoy the game. And I, I like all of it. So. I do agree I with uh, John too. I love, I love hearing Josh Roberts on the mic. I think he's one of the un most underrated commentators in the game. I like Josh. I think he's, I think he's great. All right. Well, that kind of wraps up our discussion. Um, <clears throat> Uh, two people, two people, who are your, who are your two picks? 
If you could pick anybody in the uh, the European Championships, who's your two players? Mike. Oh, European Championships. Or, or the sorry, not the uh, the European Open. Sorry, European, European Open. Two players. Uh, Josh for sure, hands down. Um, bottom half of the bracket. Well, they, do they redraw? Um, no, they just fit in. Is Federer playing or no? I can't. No. I can't. Okay, then no. I'll go with Josh and no. Alvin. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing. I was just going to say Albin. I don't. I like. I, I like Albin in this kind of tournament. I'm Did still. Gonna, say, I'm still going to pick Fedor. That's nice. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> you can't. <laughs> no, I, I like. Um, I don't know. I like pool. I'll say Josh. I'll say. Uh, I want to go with Josh and. Well, Josh and Alex Kazakis. I mean, I like. I like to pick not scratch. You know, I'm not even going to pick Josh. I'm going to say Alex Kazakis. And David Alkaidi. That's you know that's wow. those are my picks. Okay, good deal. You know, so there, there's a quote that I when I think about Fedor, I've, I've probably said this before, but I think it's one of the best quotes ever. Uh, there was a guy that was interviewed a guy that uh, they were talking about Bobby Fischer in chess back in the '60s, and they were interviewing different players that had played against Bobby Fischer and asked him like, you know, what's it, what was your experience playing Fischer? What's it like? How do you feel? And there was all these different quotes and all these people talking about Fisher this and Fisher that. And he plays so strong. But then finally, after all these long answers, you had this one guy that just said, it begins to feel as if one is playing against chess itself. And I just yeah. love that quote. And I just feel like Federer, when you're playing Federer pool, it's like you just actually feel like you're actually competing against, like if nine ball, if the spirit of nine ball took the form of a, of a, of a player, it would be Fedor. It's just yeah, yeah. yeah. super strong. All right, we went really long today, but I thought we had a fun discussion. So yeah, it was fun. Yep. Thanks, guys. Thanks, right, everyone, we'll, for tuning in. Yep, we'll see you next week, everyone. Thanks for tuning in.